Welcome back to the nationally syndicated Price of Business. I'm your host, Kevin Price, talking to you about you and your business. And let's face it, all things media, particularly news media related, related has a pro- profound impact on our lives and on our business. And there's really no one I'd like to talk to more about this than Baya Unger Sargon. She is the opinion editor at Newsweek Magazine, longtime friend of the show, uh, personal favorite of mine. And, uh, you know, Baya, I've been doing my show since the early 90s. I mean, I'm sorry, the early 2000s. Wow. I've been on radio since the, since the 90s. Uh, but I've been at this show is, is 20 years old. And uh, I don't get very excited about guests. I'll be perfectly honest with you. I interview senators and cabinet members and diplomats, uh, you know, and it's like, oh, that's all nice, you know. But I got to tell you, I get giddy whenever I see you on my radar screen. Oh, my gosh. That is so kind of you. Thank you. I love doing this show. I love our conversations. I'm so influenced by you. So that is that's really thrilling to hear. Thank you so much, Kevin, and thank you for having me. You always, always. So before we get into our topics, uh, I want you to talk, and it's always hard to choose a topic. You and I can talk about 15 different things every time you're on. Um, and that's part of the excitement is I've got to whittle my brain down to a, do at least a few topics to sort it out. Um, but you've got to talk, to your, you talk about your book. I think your book is one of the most important books out there on really one of the most important issues facing our country, which is the problem with journalism, particularly the media elite. And very few have targeted the media elite idea or concept as systemic to the uh, media crisis in this country. None like you have. Very few have even noticed it at all. Talk about your book. I, I think it's so important. Thank you so much for uh, the opportunity to discuss it. Uh, my book is called Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy, and it tells the story of how our media became so woke. And what I mean by that is how it became obsessed with race and gender and talking about race and gender through this very academic, very um, focused on power lens in a way that really does not reflect how most Americans, including most black and Hispanic Americans, see themselves And I argue in the book that this is a story that looks like it's about race and gender. Maybe it looks like it's about politics, but actually it's about class. And the reason the media got so woke is because journalists used to be working class and they became parts of the elites. And in order to masquerade that, they started obsessing over identity as a way of avoiding talking about the ways that they've benefited from income inequality. Um, and I'm now working on my second book, um, which is called Promised Land, and it's about who is the American working class and do they still have a fair shot at the American dream. And boy, Kevin, do I hope you like this book because um, it's. I hope it'll be right up your alley. I hope that it'll have the kind of analysis um, that you could really uh, get behind and that you will think that um, it is accurate. <laughs> Yeah, well, you and I talk a little bit about it in, in development, and I think you're nailing some incredible concepts like the role of the family that has been incredibly undermined by the media elite and by the left. A hundred percent, yeah. Yeah, it, it's, you know, it's too old-fashioned, I guess, for, for the media, but to me it's crucial. It's part of the backbone of uh, all civilization, and so I, I, I'm, I can't wait to read it, uh, frankly, and look forward to it. Thank and you. we can't, you know, again, I don't want this to be like an infomercial for all things by you, <laughs> but you got so many cool <laughs> things going on. I'd like to give you an opportunity to mention, of course, 
what you got going on in Newsweek, which I, I really consider really the most unique news publication out there, which is amazing when you can't think about it. Isn't Newsweek around a century old? Yeah, 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 90 years old. Yeah, we're, 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 in, we're in birthday mode. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm the opinion editor, and um, since I became the opinion editor about two months ago, um, we launched the daily debate every morning or evening. You can go to Newsweek and see a brand-new debate on one of the most important topics of the day. Um, you'll see two competing points of view. It's not always left and right, although it's often left and right. Sometimes we get two people on the right to argue about something. Sometimes we get two people on the left to disagree about something. But, you know, you will see a debate there relevant to your life about one of the major news topics um, d d debated from multiple points of view because um, the truth is we're looking for common ground. But common ground doesn't mean you stay in the squishy center. You know, common ground means I am comfortable with the fact that some people don't agree with me and I want to hear what they think. That's what used yeah. to make this country great. And because the elites benefit from polarization and making us hate each other, there's, there's a lot less of that. So we at Newsweek are deeply, deeply committed to that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, we need to have another conversation about how the, uh, how the media elite benefits from that. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. But there's a topic that got a lot of uh, steam, of course, recently. It's pivotal in many ways, historic in uh, maybe all ways, which is the affirmative action uh, decision of the uh, Supreme Court regarding colleges and universities, which, of course, it, it eventually, in my opinion, is going to have an impact on labor as well. I think it has potentially far-reaching implications. Um, talk a little bit about that. Were you surprised by the Supreme Court's decision on that? Um, you know, I know this, this court is always described as the most conservative court ever. It's extremely conservative. It's right-wing. I hear that a, a lot. What I, I notice about this court is that the thing that best describes it is that it's about requir requiring appropriate branches of government to do its job. That seems to be the driver of this court. It's so funny because to me what this court represents is they're, vote, they're, they're ruling where the vast majority of Americans are at. And now that's not actually their job, right? Their job is to rule according to the Constitution. But unsurprisingly, because the American people love their Constitution, polling shows again and again that where this Supreme Court has ruled is where most Americans are at. Um, you know, in terms of abortion, they don't like abortion bans. But they also don't think that you should be able to have an abortion in the third trimester. That's just not where Americans are at. And affirmative action is another great example of that. 75% of Americans oppose affirmative action. 60% of Democrats, Kevin, oppose affirmative action. And 65% of black Americans oppose affirmative action. And so there's just huge consensus among the American people on that topic. And so when the Supreme Court was ruling based just on its view of what, whether it's constitutional or not, which clearly it wasn't, and they ruled that it wasn't, they were also representing where most Americans are at. Now, the funny thing is, is if you turned on CNN or MSNBC or you opened the New York Times, 
it was just a series of lamentations of, you know, just people in mourning that, that now no black American will be able to get a quality education. I mean, they truly believe that without stacking the deck, black Americans can't achieve. And instead of fixing the problem, which is that they're not getting a quality education that would make them able to compete um, and able to, to succeed in these schools, they just wanted this Band-Aid that actually ends up infecting the bullet wound because what they would do is they would go into these, you know, smaller schools. They would pick the, you know, the smartest black kid in this, you know, tiny school where they were not getting a great education, but they're very talented and smart. And instead of letting them go to a state school where they would be at the top of the class like they were in their little school in their little town, they pluck them. And for the vanity of the elites, they put them in Harvard where they just can't keep up because they're competing against white kids who have been in prep schools, who have been taking college level classes since seventh grade. It is so disgusting because then this kid who's bright and smart and talented and would have had an amazing career suddenly feels totally demoralized, can't keep up, so often they'll fail out, and then have student loans, $10,000, $20,000 in student loans. It's really, really, really horrible. And I have to say one last point on this. Michelle Obama and Barack Obama tweeted about the ruling. Now, of course, in, as, as Democrats in good standing, they had to they had to bemoan it. But they both acknowledged the fact that Michelle more than than Barack Obama, but she, which Michelle Obama said was she said that she when she got to college, she could never know if she had gotten on in on her own merits or if she had gotten in because of affirmative action. And it made her feel extremely insecure. I mean, what a horrible thing to do to students. Instead of saying we're going to get to the root causes of why there are so few black students in these elite colleges and make it so that it's more equitable in a real way, they actually just try to short circuit it and they end up hurting the kids, hurting the community, and hurting the way that they're perceived. And the whole thing for the vanity of elites, because, because what happens is, is if, if, if you look around you and you see only white people in these elite spaces, you know it's rigged, right? It's obviously rigged if everybody there is white. So they want to pretend that they got in on their own merits, but they don't want to actually open the field to everybody. So what they do is they bring in a few token people to make them feel better about themselves. It was really appalling, and I, I think it's so great that the Supreme Court did this. And I for a long time supported affirmative action because I, it, it is horrifying to see the racial disparities in the elites. You do want a more diverse elite, but you have to put in the work. You can't short-circuit your way because you're just going to end up hurting the people themselves. Well, yeah, and if, if you know, you, you embossed a lot there, by the way. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, I, I look at Clarence Thomas, you know, who, uh, you know, boy, you talk about uh, someone who is you know, despised by the elite, uh, the media elite. He wrote a phenomenal book, really is an uh, autobiography in uh, an abstract sort of way called My Grandfather's Son. And uh, that book, you know, in the essence, the heart of that book is about exactly what you just talked about, about what it's like to be a, a black man in a world that is uh, perceived that all advancement is one of entitlement and not because of uh, personal success. And, right. and how he's, you know, if you if the media wants you, right? And and the first of all, the, they they use the most disgustingly racist language to talk about him, but they make it seem like he is the outlier when he is describing where sixty five percent of blacks are. 
and they make you think that he's some sort of crazy outlier who doesn't represent them, and they call him just really racial slurs. Like, you'll hear him called racial slurs on, on MSNBC. It's disgusting. Yes. But that is where most black Americans are at because they just want a fair shot at the American dream. And, and they've been really, really, really abandoned in that effort by the Democrats who rely on this kind of underclass. They rely on them being an underclass to get power. Yeah. And, and one of the things that skews the whole topic, in my opinion, is that there's way short of what is being proposed, you know, what has been done now historically for years in a reverse discrimination sort of way. That's, that's the argument against affirmative action, right? Is the idea of just changing the weight of different things in the process of, of accepting. Put more weight on, on a student's essay, because that is part of it. Just give more weight to that. And let the school give latitude to that. There's way short of government coercion and uh, really creating a situation where before this ruling, uh, you know, you, you were acting um, inappropriately or maybe even criminal, depending on, on which agency is dealing with you. If you weren't uh, giving that weight of affirmative action like it was done in a very, no pun intended, black and white sort of way. Uh, they have plenty of latitude to take a nuanced approach if they want affirmative action. Yeah, I mean, the, the university system is so broken. I, I don't understand why do we give public funds to an institution like Harvard that has a $40 billion endowment. And all that goes on there is, is, is so, you know, 80% of what happens there is just critical race theory and other sorts of nonsense where they're churning out, you know, progressives in good standing. I, I just don't understand why it's in the public interest to fund that, and what is the public getting in return for funding all this stuff? We we don't get better health care, that's for sure. We don't get cheaper health care, you know? We don't no. get access to the goods that we are purchasing with our taxpayer dollars. It's all going to administrators. It's making very, very, very wealthy people wealthier. Um, it's very infuriating, I, I think. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I, I love the use of the word elite. You know, and the Democratic Party in particular has become incredibly elitist. Uh, and, of course, the Republican Party is nowhere near the blue-collar party that it should be. Frankly, stated values, the Republicans are way more lined up with the uh, uh, average American in terms of stated values, yet they distance themselves from that as if they don't want to be with the unwashed masses. It's such a weird dichotomy. And neither, both parties have abandoned the middle, middle class, which is really the backbone of uh, the success of any society. I could not agree with you more. Uh, you know, the, the, the working class, the middle class, these people by and large agree with Republicans on social issues, especially now that Trump's made Republicans so pro-gay and made them much, a much more liberal party on social issues. I would say the most Americans really do see themselves much more reflected in the social values of the Republicans when it comes to, you know, the moderate version of their abortion position, the kind of pro-family, even, you know, if you're a gay couple, but you're raising children in a loving home, um, anti-trans and children, anti-woke overreach, like that's sort of where most Americans are at. The problem is, is that there's no real robust labor movement on the right which leaves them sort of to whatever, whatever, you know, the unions muster up. And often the unions will be, I mean, 
the unions are very aligned with the Democratic Party, but the problem with the Democratic Party is they may be better on labor in some ways, but they, they couple that with environmental overreach and open borders, which of course are extremely punishing on the working class. So you have two sides that have essentially sold out the working class and the middle class dream and the American dream, and they're left kind of with no representation and just these, 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 these uh, politicians who are out there saying, no, you represent us. You give us your vote so we can wage culture battles that benefit the elites. It's really terrible. It really is. And uh, it's very sad when you've seen essentially both parties do that. Uh, if you want to look at how totalitarian regimes look uh, and how third world countries look, they have a very small, rich class and a vast, impoverished class and virtually yeah. nothing in between. And so uh, unless you want to fall into that lot, we need to be thinking much more seriously about how to, in a healthy way, foster the middle class. Okay, you and I, I love talking to you. My God, I, I look at the clock. I was like, I can't believe uh, it goes so fast every time you're on. Um, final thoughts from you, though, as we wrap it up. Um, yeah, well, the, you know, all of these issues are what my next book is about, so I'm thinking about them a lot. Like, you know, where do we go from here? Like, is it feasible to think about a Republican Party that is pro-labor, or are they always going to choose their donor class over their voter class at the end of the day? And, um, you know, it just, yeah, that's kind of where, where I'm thinking, like, how do we how do we get out of the situation where, you know, the rich are demanding that the poor and the working class represent them? And how do we have a healthier debate about this? And I would say the most important thing I found is that, you know, when you get out of the elites, Americans are just not divided anymore on, on most issues. And they're so sick of the fighting and so sick of the polarization. Yeah, they really are. Yeah, America could really use, uh, or the Republican Party could really use a Jack Kent. And Jack Kemp was a friend of mine. I, I uh, uh, in fact, he helped me get one of my first jobs in D.C. Uh, but you know, he he uh, cut from a similar cloth in some ways to a John F. Kennedy. Uh, the idea of a rising tide lifts all boats, uh, not one that uh, is uh, cruelly capitalistic, uh, but one that really benefits all people, and 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 to not ignore uh, the, the those who have uh, unaddressed needs, but recognize how your party can address those needs uh, without copying the other party. I mean, kind of a common sense approach, and certainly e pluribus unum, right? Among many, one. Uh, It seems like neither party has much of that anymore. Yeah, could not agree with you more. All right. Bye, Younger Sargon. We always love having you on. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Kevin Price. This is the nationally syndicated Price of Business. Stay tuned for more.